Welcome to After Hour, a podcast where a journalist retains a lawyer to solve societal problems. Because sometimes knowing why isn't good enough. We need to know what we can do. Sometimes we need more than truth. We need hope. I'm Jane Steele, your host and investigative journalist here with Joseph, the managing partner of Sang & Associates. Hi, Joseph. Hi. Thanks so much for being willing to talk with me again. It's a pleasure being here. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it. The topic today is forced labor and slavery in the United States. I have a particular case, United States versus Kalalin, and it's a little bit old, but I think a lot of it is super relevant to today still. So let's get right into it. So this case revolves around a 16-year-old girl named Irma Martinez. She began working for a family named Mendoza back in the Philippines, where there it was actually relatively normal for wealthier, better-to-do families to have a live-in housekeeper to take care of the house, take care of the children. That wouldn't have raised any eyebrows. And so that was her arrangement. And her family was actually quite poor and dependent on her salary. At the urging of a man named Dr. Mendoza, she traveled to the United States when she was about 19 years old, so three years into working for this family. She told consular officers when she arrived that she needed a visa in order to accompany Dr. Mendoza, who was going to the U.S. for medical treatment. But this wasn't entirely true. She actually really intended to stay in the U.S. to work. So not entirely honest in this process. She did get a visa, though, which permitted a two-year stay as long as she departed and re-entered the U.S. at least once every six months. Like I said, this was back in 1985. She then was sent to work with wealthy Filipino doctors. They were a married couple, Jefferson and Elnora Kalalim. And this was actually the daughter and son-in-law of the man who she accompanied to the United States. So it's the same family. And she was employed as their housekeeper, which is something she'd been doing since she was 16. But upon arrival, this couple told her that she would actually have to pay them back for the plane ticket to the US, that that was not a gift, that now she's in debt and they took her passport. They also told her that she was in the U.S. illegally, not now, because they basically nullified her her visa and told her, you know, that's not legitimate. You were actually illegal since you stepped foot in the U.S. And she didn't even know any English at this point. She didn't know English for the first five to six years she was in the U.S. So now she's in the U.S. in a foreign country where she doesn't know the language, where she doesn't have her passport, where she's in debt, in monetary debt, and she's being told you're here illegally. And she was just 19 years old at the time. She had a daily routine for 20 years where she would begin at 6 a.m. early in the morning and would end around 10 p.m. This was seven days a week, basically no vacations. This was her life. She cared for the household and kids you know, the family cars, investment properties, medical offices. During her 19 years of service, they basically forbid her to leave the house unescorted. She was not allowed to leave. She never walked out the front door of the first house. And she answered the door in the second house one time during Halloween because she could put a mask on so people wouldn't know who she was. They required her to lock herself in her bedroom when they had company. She had to go to the bathroom. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if we have company here for all day. Doesn't matter if it's an all-day party. You have to stay here. They didn't care. She wasn't allowed to have any friends. The kids were told, essentially, she doesn't exist. If anyone asks, don't say anything. 
she wasn't allowed to attend a church that she wanted to go to or engage in any social church activities. They did let her go to church, but she had to take a back way where people wouldn't see her. And then once she had gone to a certain church X amount of times, they would pull her from that church and send her to another one because they didn't want people actually getting to know her. They didn't want her to form any relationships, especially relationships at a place like a church where they're intimate and familial and people might start caring about her and asking questions. They also restricted her contact and communications with her family who were still back in the Philippines this whole time. In the entire 19 years she was there, they allowed her to talk with her family four to five times on the phone. In 19 years, four to five phone conversations with her family. And even when she was on the phone with them, her employers were standing right next to her, listening, wanting to make sure she doesn't say anything that will get her or us, more importantly, in trouble. So no private conversations with her family for 20 years. Finally, like I said, this case started in 1985. Finally, in 2004, federal agents got an anonymous tip and they executed a search warrant on the family home. They found her basically shaking in the closet of her bedroom because this is terrifying. She hasn't had access to the outside world. She has no contact with anybody. And she's been lied to for 20 years that if anyone, this is the worst nightmare, right? This is the end. Thankfully, though, the district court does sentence the Callalims to 48 months imprisonment on four counts to run concurrently. So that turned out to 192 months or 16 years. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. The funny part is the Kalalims actually went back and tried to appeal their conviction. And when they got to the appellate court, the appellate court basically laughed in their face and gave them more time. Wow. <laughs> because they they recognize they're, you guys are rich doctors. You're not dumb. You weren't doing this because you needed to. You weren't desperate. And now you have the gall to come back and ask <laughs> to appeal your conviction. That's a joke. Right. We'll give you more time. Good. Right? I know. That was exactly my reaction. Very satisfying. (laughs) Very satisfying end. A study by Polaris, based on data from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, identified some 8,001 individual victims of human trafficking from 2015 to 2017 that were here and working under temporary work visas. So very similar to Irma, the 16-year-old girl. And back in 2013, the Economic Policy Institute estimated that there were 1.42 million temporary foreign workers. So if that's the amount of foreign workers that were there, estimated, of course, in 2013, we can only assume that this is going on. Maybe not to the scale, maybe not for the same period of time, but crimes like these are notoriously underreported for obvious reasons. They're easy to get away with. It's easy to to keep it just down low, to keep it in the dark. And this is a global problem too, right? This is not just the United States. The International Labor Organization estimates that forced labor generates 50 billion in illegal profits every year. So this is a massive industry. And at any given time, an estimated 40.3 million people are in modern slavery. And about 24.9 million, so 25 million people of that are in forced labor specifically. So this is a huge issue. And not to be surprising, probably, women and girls are disproportionately affected by forced labor. In the commercial sex industry, which we've talked about, they're 99% of the victims is going to be women and girls. And this is a well-known issue. We've dealt with this. this. Like I said, this case started in 1985 and wrapped up in 2006. So old news. But even though it really has gained so much attention, and this is not, this is not an unheard of issue, 
I really think that the the legal framework that we have doesn't really meet its victims very well. It doesn't really reach them. Just because we have the framework doesn't mean it, it works, right? Because labor trafficking is such a big issue. It's huge, but it's also really shady. It's really vague. It's very nuanced. And it can be hard to detect and prosecute because it camouflages itself really easily. And local law enforcement, they they do their best. They try, right? But sometimes they're reluctant. They're reluctant to get involved in this. And that could be for a ton of reasons. It could be for anti-immigration sentiment. Maybe the victim statements aren't very convincing. Maybe, you know, they just don't really want to deal with the challenge of working with the Homeland Security. could be for all of these things. But I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to the victim's fear. Because if there's an estimated 1.42 million people here working in potentially hazardous situations, potentially abusive scenarios, why wouldn't they come forward? And it's pretty clear, right? Is they're, they're afraid. They think they can't. Whether they think so rightly or wrongly, they have been told and they have been manipulated and coerced and put in a controlled environment to believe that this is your only option. You cannot go home. You cannot seek help. I yeah, maybe I don't treat you great, but I'm your best bet. And so stick with me. And so the victims out of fear stay. It's been pretty clearly articulated over the years. The trafficker's most powerful weapon is this fear that they inject into their employees or those who they're trafficking. It's the fear. It's the lies. It's the, you can't leave. You're going to be deported. You're going to be arrested. Who knows what's going to happen to your life? If you get caught, it's over for you. It's that that's keeping them tied to their employer. And it's my understanding that even some of these temporary visas are legally tied to a particular employer. So if the if whoever's being victimized tries to leave, they will be deported. So they're deported either way. They have no good options, right? You call for help and then you go to jail. You call to help, you're, the police are going to be no better. They, they don't want to deal with the justice system because they're afraid. They've been, they've been lied to. Or you try to leave and you do something else, but then maybe you had legal status and now you don't anymore. It's taken away because you left essentially an abusive workplace and now you're being punished for leaving this abusive workplace. <sighs> Joseph, you you totally deal with this all the time. This is you deal with the labor department, you've dealt with cases. This is your bread and butter. And from a societal perspective, this touches on way more than the one case we discussed as crazy as it was and horrific as it was. This is much larger. This is our society. This is this is America. We know that deportation is the main threat that these traffickers use. We can't control whether people have bad intent, right? We can't say, don't hurt your fellow man. People people will. People will try to take advantage of others and have bad intent. But if we know these bad actors, their main weapon is the threat of deportation, which is literally something we've given them. Why don't we take that away? We would essentially be declawing the traffickers without having to try to deal with with their hearts or other societal issues or other economic issues because these traffickers are using a weapon that we gave them. So why why haven't we done that? Why don't we because to me it seems to be such a clear link, right? It's clearly stated they use fear and it's fear of what? Fear of deportation. Well, we have the power to get rid of that fear. We can we can get rid of it. 
Why don't we do that? Jane, this is actually something I deal with on a daily basis. So much of immigration law is dealing with the labor department, the public policy of the United States, and whether somebody is working legally or not working legally. So I have a simple response for you regarding how do we declaw these people using fear to bring in and traffic in these unlawful workers. And I have a much more complicated topic that we want to talk about. So with regards to declawing these greedy, unethical employers, it's actually already there with U visa, with a lot of different visas. If these victims report this to the government and they file the appropriate visa, they themselves can get legal residency here in the United States. And so they don't have to be afraid, but it's not a perfect solution because maybe they can get temporary residency here, but it might take a long time. There might be a lot of filing fees. There might be legal fees involved. And how are they going to find another employer? And what we're dealing with, with and was specifically with this case, they are not just ill-informed. They are lied to, and they don't have the capability to even help themselves. In this case, it's a 16-year-old girl. She's not a 30-year-old college educated with a master's degree and have access to the internet, right? right? So a lot of these people don't have the capability to even help themselves. And on top of that, they're being lied to by their almost parental figures in their life, mm -hmm. uh, the source of their emotional and financial support. So it makes it that much more complicated, even when you provide this option. And on top of that, let's say they do seek out help and an attorney or somebody else tells them, I can get you permanent residence status. You have to report them. Now they have to live with this additional fear. Well, what if these employers who are much more powerful than they are, they know everything about them and their family. What if they go after my family? Right. What if they, they know where I live in Philippines? They have the power and resources to destroy our lives. So there's that additional fear. So how can we improve upon the system? You can't just declaw and get rid of the fear from these perpetrators, you actually have to give a lot more power to the victims themselves. Now, US being a very free and just society, there's the criminal system and there's a civil system. You can provide the option to these victims. Well, why don't you go and sue these perpetrators? You can sue them in criminal court or you can report this to a criminal court. And in this case, they get 15 years, 16 years in jail, plus the appeal jail time. But that's just the criminal charge. What about a civil charge? You can bring suit in civil court and the unlawful imprisonment that you've experienced, the emotional hardship. Maybe you can claim the, what was it, 8,600 square feet house? Maybe you can claim <laughs> that as your own. Totally, totally possible. So if people who haven't suffered anything can sue a business or an association for money because a law is there that they weren't complying, uh, a particularly a labor law was there that they didn't abide by, how much more so if you are truly a victim for a year, two years, five years, 20 years, this little girl, now this grown woman, have substantial rights to sue almost the entire assets. Hmm. But now let's bring it back to the second fear. If she does bring that claim in a civil suit, you can imagine the fear that she is undergoing right? Yeah. Maybe the money come, maybe the money won't come, but almost guaranteed, I have made an enemy that is much more powerful than I am. Hmm. So what if the criminal justice system 
provides some remedy and relief and restitution for this girl. So during the criminal process, if it's the State Department, if it's the government clawing back some of the injury instead of just paying for the government, but also providing some of that remedy for the girl and the family, that will make it just that much better, right? Mm -hmm. So that's just one small suggestion for our criminal system. Maybe that will be able to help a lot of the people who are too powerless to even hire an attorney to represent themselves to try to claim any sort of relief, um, allowing the criminal system to provide a little bit of that. It might not be as much, but at least the victims won't have to live in this type of fear. Um, wanting to hire an attorney but can't or having hired an attorney but wanting to drop the case because if it's somebody else advocating for you that's outside of your control, it's not like something you can just completely drop, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like the criminal system. Once a crime has been committed, it's outside of the victim's wishes. Now that crime has been committed against society, against the Commonwealth of the United States of America. And that's why the criminal justice system steps in to put the perpetrators in their place. Mm -hmm. But on top of just punishing, maybe also restitution, maybe also providing some sort of remedies instead of putting all of that burden in the hands of the victims and having them try to get their money back in a way. Right. Because the odds of that happening and people doing that in my mind is pretty low. Right. Right. And and even even because it's already on the victim to escape or to seek help the first time. So that's already a huge step and that's already really difficult. The, especially if you leave your employer, you don't know where you're going to stay. You don't know where your income is going to come from. That's a huge step. But then to go one step beyond and become now almost an opponent, or I'm not just trying to get out of the situation. Now I'm actually going to go back and try to get what was taken from me. That's an additional step that just seems almost not not actually beyond reach but beyond what most people i think would do like if it was me i would i would just try to get out of there you know so that that's a great suggestion and it's pretty simple too and think about what kind of effect that will have on the perpetrators um these criminal organizations or individuals that are trying to traffic in low-cost labors if they know that these labors can simply go to the government get their green card, get their visas, report them, and that all the wages that I should have paid them in a normal wage, the government will somehow claw it back on their behalf. Mm. I might as well just hire a normal U.S. worker. Hmm. Especially if maybe not this particular case, but you're hiring 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 people, the odds of just one of them going, your liability shoots up. So that's the simple suggestion for the government. The government can launch this program. Now, every perpetrator will live in fear. All the undocumented workers will potentially report. The government will have the ability to claw back all this money on behalf of all these people, but also the government will be able to charge a fee as well, as they usually do with the filing <laughs> fees. So the government will make a lot of money. They will deter a lot of unlawful practices. More U.S. workers will get jobs back. And... um and so it seems like it's a win-win situation, but the situation is actually a lot more complex than that. And maybe that is why the government hasn't created this program. The truth is the United States of America and every government in general, they have a very complicated relationship with cheap labor, with labor generally, of course, because labor is the economic foundation building block of society, not just to individual families, but to businesses and to the government with all its taxation. But United States in particular, starting with slavery, 
cheap labor, free labor. You know, the moment slavery ended, immediately all these Chinese migrant workers came in to build the railroads to expand. That happened mm. right afterwards. Interesting. And then right after that, there's the war wars, right? World War One, World War Two, and then after that. All the migrants around the world came to the United States to continue to fuel the growth of the U.S. And then economic boom, outsourcing, it goes on and on. In every decade of the U.S. history, in this short span of a couple hundred years, you can see the U.S. always had a source and funnel of cheap labor. Now, I'm not saying it's systematic. I'm not saying that it's intentional. I'm not saying that there's this mastermind behind this whole policy, that this is how we grow the U.S., that we are dependent on it, we're addicted to it. That is too far. It's hard to justify that claim. But the undisputed truth is that the success that we've experienced is in part due to the cheap labor. And when we're talking about cheap labor, I'm not just talking about farm workers. I'm also talking about $120,000, $150,000 salary for high-tech H-1B employees because that is considered cheap. For $150,000, I could get this PhD, super talented mastermind of a software technician. Mm-hmm. Normally, I would have to pay $300,000. So I'm getting heavily discounted. So, so much of America's greatness can be attributed to the cheap labor. And so that's why our immigration system, the labor department, is constantly struggling and dealing with this particular problem. It's much more than just finding remedies for individual workers who are being exploited. We have to talk about public policy. And what I mean by public policy, because justice itself is a public policy idea, but comparing and contrasting the public policy to economic growth for the U.S. as a whole, for corporations, for U.S. workers, the young graduates and the people who are about to retire, and for our immigration system, providing a just and fair way for people to come and to work. So I think the bottom line is this. Your original question is something along the lines, how can we stop the U.S. from having cheap labor? Or how can we stop the world from utilizing cheap labor and exploiting people, right? The truth is the U.S. already values this to the point where we are sanctioning other countries when they use cheap labor. And, you know, so you use cheap labor, then we're not going to trade with you. Then our companies cannot use your products. You know, this country is already pushing that value to the forefront. But that might not be the right question because of the complexity I just mentioned of all these conflicting public policies that not only are we dealing with in this country, but every government is dealing with within their own country. Maybe the better question to try to answer is how can we be a good and righteous society that provides workers with good benefits and clear and that we can continuously grow in a fair and meaningful way. We don't have to be dependent on cheap labor like the way we used to so we can grow from that and we can be an example to other countries who have no better example because when they watched how we grew, hey, you did that. Why don't we do that as well, right? So be the light, be the example. Maybe they will mock us at first. Maybe they will ignore what we're doing and continue to do what they do. But maybe eventually they will come around and envy us and in hopes in the end they might end up copying us. Yeah, that's true because because you have examples in, in other countries too and we look at them and how could this be going on? Or, oh, that's such a clear abuse. That's such a clear this or that. And then there is that that 
intellectual humility or historical humility of looking back and saying, you know, well, we haven't exactly given them much to look at. You know, maybe we do have these ideals or these values, but if we actually look at what's happened and what we, what our government has done, like you said earlier, we can't help but acknowledge that we also engaged in some of these practices that we're now looking down on other people for. You know, if we're not doing those exact things anymore, that's great. And that's, we're not doing them now. We're growing, that's better. But, you know, we also have to recognize we did give them this example. And especially because the U.S. is such a major player on the world stage, we gave them an example that's highlighted, right? It's look at our growth, look at this, and, and how did we get here? Hmm, not so great methods. So now maybe we, like you said, we now have to change change the narrative moving forward of this is where we came from. We're in a much better position now. And this is something people care about. How can we become an example, an example that's worth following? Because we've been an example for better, or for worse. But how can we become an example that's that's worth following and have our values actually line up with our with our practices? These are things that we all we all want. I'm hopeful, you know, even with this case, it's horrific. And we want we want to do everything we can to rescue people from from these abusive situations. But when you were talking about how we have the U visa, we have alternatives that the the lie of you're just going to be deported and your life's going to be cleaned away is it's not true. There is an alternative, and I think that that's relatively new. It hasn't been here forever, and so over time, hopefully, we will see that being utilized more and more, and then becoming increasingly common knowledge so workers are empowered and then maybe one day it'll get even better yeah i think there's reason to be hopeful if you look at the short span of a couple hundred years in our own history we went from slavery and not just forced labor but like a huge portion of our country uh loving slavery and justifying slavery or to a point we had to fight a civil war over it to the point of disliking forced labor so much so that in other countries, if they engage in it, that we will ban and, and we will stop trading with those other countries. Think about that. It's within a few generations, the complete change in mentality. So who would knows what dreams may come in another hundred years, what kind of society, what kind of world we'll live in, but we definitely need to adapt. We're in a really young country and we're in a really young nation. And at this point in it, our lives can make up actually a huge percentage of the lifespan of our country so far, which to me is really cool because it means that what we do now, and if we have 70, 80 years, that's a huge percentage. That's a huge time of us being alive to be able to impact our country. Well, thank you so much again. This is really interesting, really stimulating. And yeah, excited for the next one. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Many thanks to Joseph for our conversation today. After Hours is a podcast by Sangin Associates, an international firm dedicated to solving legal problems with creative solutions. If you enjoyed today's episode of After Hour, you will find these conversations and more on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. For information on Sangin Associates, go to sangslaw.com. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook as well as to learn more about what we do and hear success stories from Sang & Associates. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. 
Thank you for joining me for After Hour. I'm Jane Steele.